I bet many of you joining today's program have had the experience of sitting in a conference room, patiently being shown one slide after another filled with healthcare and improvement data. If you're lucky, the presenter is able to not just describe the facts and the numbers or a trend, but what's meaningful about the information and why anything in particular matters or what to focus on. Too often, though, it seems that may not be happening, and as more data are accessible and shared without the necessary context and meaning, it's no wonder that the excitement improvers have felt may be giving way to a lot of annoyance and confusion. What precisely are we looking for? What are we trying to improve? What do we want to know from clinical data, from administrative and billing data? And what type of data will yield the best answers? There is hope, and that's why we're glad you've tuned into this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As many of you know, we come to you live every other week, and then you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, it isn't such a bad thing to pause in the middle of healthcare data coming at us from all sides and sources and wonder aloud, what's the point? It definitely helps, though, to have some clear thinking and clear thinkers on this matter to turn to. That's why I'm quite eager to introduce our guests today. So to introductions in just a moment. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier. He'll remind you how to be an active participant today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is the chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple simple solution to any of those hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and we have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat, but tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take a quick second after the program to fill out our survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. And as a reminder, we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We do welcome tweeting during and after the program. You can multitask all you'd like. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with other followers. And I want to thank Len in advance for uh, enlisting, I think, an army of people who are going to be tweeting uh, on today's show. So, Joining me in the studio is Leonard Davolio. Uh, I hope I got that right. Yeah, you did. All right, okay. An assistant professor in the Brigham and Women's Division of General Internal Medicine and Primary Care. Len is the CEO and co-founder of SIFT, a company based on years of his research optimizing machine learning and natural language processing to improve healthcare. Welcome, Len. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And by phone, we've got IHI's Kedar Mate with us. He's a senior vice president. He's responsible for research and development at IHI, innovation and faculty. He oversees the development of innovative new systems designed to implement high-quality, low-cost healthcare, both in the U.S. and internationally. He's also an internal medicine physician and an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and a research associate at Harvard Medical School's Division of Global Health Equity. I wanted to get all that in today. Kadar, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. It's great to be with you again. All right. Fantastic. I want to let all of you know that uh, we're probably going to get close to a 1,000 of you on the live show today. Almost uh, 2,000 of you uh, signed up for this program. So uh, bear with all of us and your fellow uh, listeners and chatters as we try to cover uh, a, a big topic. No, we're never shy of doing that here at, at WIHA, and we'll also, of course, try to get uh, to all your questions. And we're wading into this topic. Topic, uh, in hopes that we're going to do it again soon. So um, thanks for being part of it. I'm going to start with Len with just, in some ways, an obvious question. Why are we hearing so much about healthcare data right now? And help us out with some definitions. So as we move through the material, we know what kind of data are we talking about? Thanks, Len. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, data is not new in healthcare. Sorry, can you hear me all right? Yeah, Good. right. Uh, quality improvement professionals have been working with data forever. They've been largely limited uh, to some secondary data, and QI professionals have to do a lot of primary data collection. So what we're talking about now is uh, sudden access to large volumes of electronic medical record data. Um, this is because, well, first, policy changes. Uh, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act created huge incentives for the down, for the installment of electronic medical records. I think it's $17,000 per adopting clinician, and then over time you can actually be penalized up to $4,000. So in very short amounts of time, uh, the government created uh, basically a, a rapid adoption. I think when the policy came out, the numbers were something like 7% adoption, and now we're well over 70%. Uh, at the same time, policy is now incentivizing pay for value. And a lot of the pay-per-value incentives uh, look to the electronic medical record to get their metrics. So suddenly, clinician performance, institution performance, is being measured from this data. Uh, so this is very important, reuses of electronic medical record data in ways we had never considered originally. And the question now for healthcare executives as well as quality improvement professionals is, how do we make the most of this? It's a raw material with all the pros and cons that come with raw material. And turning that raw material into something that can help us improve patient lives is, is now what it's all about. Help us, uh, just want to make sure, help us make some distinctions uh, when people say uh, healthcare data, uh, administrative data, billing data, clinical data, and you're, you, you did sort of um, land it with, with the electronic uh, medical record, so obviously we're talking about a lot of clinical data there. But when people's eyes are rolling around in their heads right now, um, is part of the issue the confusion about uh, different uh, qualities of data sources and what each source is for? We're going to get into that more, but is that part of what's going on? 
Yeah. So the first part of your question is what data exactly? It's electronic medical record data and administrative data. Okay. Right. So a lot of CMS reimbursement is around administrative data, and now they're adding to that through a number of programs, whether it's PQRS or whether it's through insurers now incentivizing via what's called AQC or alternative quality contracts. They're adding to the claims mix uh, metrics that are derived directly from the EMR. So, so that's the financial reimbursement side. But for QI professionals who are focused on identifying which patients could use their help, which programs are more effective, this same data can be used to do a better job of getting the right care to the right patients. And, uh, and I think, you know, the economic incentive is why it's here, frankly. Uh, but I think the opportunity is huge on the patient uh, outcome improvement side as well. Okay, thank you very much. Um, okay, Kadar, before we're, we're going to wade into a little bit more about what the problem is that we're trying to address and, and get better with, um, but what would you say is the good news for quality improvement about the data that's being generated that Len has started to describe for us? Well, um, you know, in my improvement work uh, fundamentally and the quality improvement movement fundamentally uh, depends on measurement. And, of course, the data systems and the data uh, uh, that are coming from administrative and clinical sources supply the measures that can, in some senses, can power improvement. Uh, it's, this kind of measurement, this kind of data is fundamental to the scientific method that sits at the heart of any continuous improvement methodology. And data creation, I'd say, on its own isn't what's useful. Improvers um, in the quality improvement uh, community are seeking to leverage these data to create opportunities for learning. Um, fundamental to that learning is the notion of understanding variation, as uh, Edward Deming uh, said many, many years ago. And that's where, you know, it, it, with the data that's coming into the picture right now with the available information sources that are out there, um, improvers that are looking at whole populations or systems, uh, uh, different service delivery units can start to see where there are, are positive and negative outliers. And uh, if a process time, if they're looking at process times where there might be bottlenecks or imbalances uh, that be, be prevalent in one system or other. And these variations, positive, negative, uh, bottlenecks or imbalances, these variations are instructive. They allow us to understand where there is uh, better system performance, uh, and that better system performance, uh, you can go to the front lines, go to where that better system performance is, and understand uh, what is happening in those positive deviants and assemble a theory of change that you can then prospectively act upon. The other thing that's kind of interesting about the uh, greater uh, quantity of information that's coming into the picture now is that once you've identified these sort of positive outliers or positive deviants, you now have a much richer uh, data pool available to you to understand the context that's created that positive deviant much better. That's part of the promise, and we'll talk about big data, I'm sure, later on, but that's part of the promise of uh, 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 big data or additional data sources, non-traditional data sources that have yet to be tapped, and I think that's going to be very important for us to think about as an improvement community in the future. Uh, one last point is that, theoretically, consumers could potentially use uh, the data that are out there to drive consumer behavior. The evidence here is not uh, terrific, but um, certainly healthcare providers are becoming much more conscious of publicly reported performance information and measures, and boards of directors and governance structures of our institutions of hospitals and healthcare systems are increasingly sensitive to these data. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was out uh, visiting a health system 
Um, and, you know, we, we were uh, conscious of the fact that the board uh, of directors of that health system was aware of what the, 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 the measurement of that institution, how it was being rated in hospital compare and other publicly available data sources. And theoretically, these data would drive in, uh, interest in improvement and uh, will drive the governance systems of these institutions to create or to promote the organizational cultures that value improvement. So for improvers out there, I think the, the advent of greater data um, uh, allows us to measure, uh, allows us to potentially improve, and allows us to potentially motivate for a greater focus and emphasis on quality improvement. Well, thanks, Kate. I really appreciate that, especially now that I'm going to ask Len, what's the problem? <laughs> that all sounded really good to me. Right. All, all, theor- all theoretically good, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, hopefully there are some who can identify with the positive side of what they're doing with data. Um, but we wanted to have this WIHI in part because of the sheer volume, I think, of what folks are struggling with right now, just the amount and thinking that uh, there are better and more, you know, value-ridden ways to go about this. So, Len, what, what's the problem, and, and, I'll, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into some of the solution ideas. Okay. Yeah, well, so the problem is really a set of challenges surrounding context, right? Uh, we like to talk about good data and bad data, but data is a pretty unique raw material in that it derives its value almost entirely based on context. So if I've captured a bit of data for the purpose of billing, odds are it's very good for that purpose. The challenge we were run into as quality improvement professionals is then either we are measured by that same data or we attempt to use it for a very different purpose. For example, trying to identify which patients are actually suffering from a specific disease. So I've been involved with studies, for example, where We were working with six hospitals, quite reputable, terrific hospitals, trying to understand colorectal cancer care better. You need to start by understanding who has colorectal cancer. Well, up to 80% of the folks that had the code for colorectal cancer never had the cancer. Everyone who had the cancer had a code, right? But a lot of folks were checked diagnostically for whether or not they had the cancer. So... When you take data that was captured for purpose A and you try to repurpose it for purpose B, in this case quality improvement, you just need to be very aware of the differences between the original context and the intended reuse. The challenge is the electronic medical record systems we have today were created over the course of the last few decades. They were adopted very quickly, but their original purpose was not to improve the quality of healthcare. Now, I don't say that to to be uh, negative, but at the end of the day, the hospital systems under a pay-for-service model purchased electronic medical record systems that were capable of, number one, supporting communication, one-on-one communication. So how do we as people communicate? It's narratively. We, We like to tell stories. That's the perfect medium for one person talking to another, and so that's what makes it into the electronic medical record. By some estimates, up to 70% of the clinically relevant information is unstructured free text. It's a, it's a difficult foundation to begin with. Uh, so up to 70% free text, and some specific diseases, you can have disease codes that can be up to 80% inaccurate. And on top of this, we layer data warehousing technologies with the assumption that business intelligence technologies will behave the same way in healthcare. So we try to make business intelligence into healthcare intelligence. And it's, 
you know, if, if I was working for Apple and I was trying to understand the total number of iPads sold in uh, Wisconsin in uh, 2014, I'd trust in that data because it was captured to help me understand those very things. If instead I was a quality improvement professional and I was trying to use that data to understand exactly how many patients had a disease, exactly what we did to improve upon that disease, and exactly what was the outcome, I need to be aware in advance that the data was not captured for that purpose and will be limited and our ability to, to make sense of it. Okay, good. I uh, threw up, uh, Len didn't know I put a quote of his from one of his articles uh, up on <laughs> the screen. And I, I do want to remind anybody, by the way, who's just joined by phone and not computer, you can get all these slides by emailing info at IHI.org. They'll all be posted also to the website by tomorrow morning. Um, I, I loved this quote because it really is that reflection of every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. It's another version of that. The data collection issues that we're having now in some ways have been perfectly designed. I'm going to uh, turn to this next slide, John, the data pyramid, because we're going to get into some of Len's data thinking. But uh, let me give uh, Kadar a moment to weigh in here. So Len just kind of laid out uh, some of this sort of mismatch that's going on. Uh, So is that something from where you sit, Kadar and IHI, that we're seeing also, and uh, is that partly driven by just the sheer amount of measures coming at everyone uh, that's making it hard to really step back and uh, see how to fulfill those? Just a kind of quick, some quick thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I, we're doing a lot of measuring these days, and um, you know, by some estimates, uh, you know, doctors spend some. Uh, they click through. I mean, there was a study that uh, was done in 2013 that says during a 10-hour shift, emergency room doctors spend most of the time looking at the computers and, and clicking the mouse more than 4,000 times. We're doing a, a tremendous amount of data entry and a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of, of measurement at this point in time. Um, and, and, and this gets particularly pernicious, I think, as we aggregate data and we send reports up to management with little or no feedback expected uh, to return to the front lines where that data entry is taking place. And so when we, when we start to primarily measure uh, to satisfy the, the appetite of, of, of management, uh, we forget the critical role that measurement plays to improve actions at the front line. Um, and, and in fact, this, does, this has inc- increasingly pernicious effects because if so much of our effort at the front line is focused on extracting information, uh, uh, clicking the mouse 4,000 times, we actually lose the capability to make a change. We, we lose the ability uh, fundamentally uh, to, to change systems and practices. And change itself becomes about, uh, about measuring better rather than actually making system changes to, to, uh, to what we're doing. And, and in the end, I, I wonder at times uh, whether or not we're measuring uh, what matters these days. There was a, a recent New England German Journal perspective piece written by Michael Porter and Tom Lee and, and, and others um, and they were describing what's in the. Uh, uh, they were describing the dearth of outcome measures in the National Quality Measurement Clearinghouse, uh, which currently has about uh, almost 2,000 measures, 1,950 measures. The majority of which are are, are process measures. Only 218 outcome measures, and on, of those, only 32 were patient-reported health status. So, a very small uh, proportion of our current quality measurement. Is, is really looking at, uh, you know, uh, fundamentally what we're after, a patient-reported health status change. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot to, to say about this. And, and, and to just to say one thing, uh, 1,958 measures, almost 2,000 
quality measures in this country, uh, way too many. And, and what can we do to rationally cut down on this effort? There, there are efforts underway. I think there's some promising things happening uh, from the International Consortium for Health Outcomes Measurement, from CMS's latest uh, core quality measures collaborative, which just the other day uh, proposed a consolidated a set of measures for six uh, key clinical disciplines, uh, cardiology, uh, uh, certain infectious diseases, HIV and hepatitis C, along with medical oncology and orthopedics. And, and our research and development team at IHI has been thinking about not so much another set of measures, uh, we have too many of those already, but rather what might be a set of uh, simple rules that health systems can use today to reduce the burden of measurement, simple things like eliminating redundant measures. In that same article that I was re referencing earlier, uh, Porter and Lee found um, some 79 or 80 measures that in the outcomes category that were not true outcomes or duplicate measures. So a tremendous amount of redundancy in our measurement systems right now. Okay. And then one last thing I'd say, Matt, before I, before I finish is that, yep. yeah, I think we're finding, the, we focus on these big investments in electronic health records and sort of the big decisions around which technology we should choose, um, when instead I think we should be focusing on who has access to the data, how will the frontline use that data to manage the daily hassles that they have, how can patients use it for self-care, how can the data be structured for routine use. And, um, you know, these issues, I think, you know, I, I've seen run charts in, or control charts in hospitals where, you know, they're doing pretty well, and then there's suddenly a spike in adverse events. And annotated on a run chart is the simple phrase, EHR implementation happened here, you know. Uh, and I think that's the, there's, there's a real danger, I think, in some senses around this, uh, around some of this at this point in time. Thank you. All really uh, interesting uh, thoughts. The Porter and Lee article, by the way, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we captured it in the last WIHI uh, on February uh, 18th with uh, Don Berwick and his daughter, Jessica Berwick, uh, focusing a little bit around some of Don's thoughts about uh, measures these days. We'll, we'll grab that one again for you, so don't despair. We'll certainly have it in the resource document. Len, you wanted to make a comment, and then I want to get back to that pyramid and data thinking, okay? Yeah, sure. Qu yeah. Well, quickly, I, I can't arm makes a great point. I think what we've learned in healthcare is when you incentivize checking boxes, uh, you get boxes checked wonderfully, uh, not necessarily the same as improving care. The terrible irony here is uh, what the capture of large amounts of data makes possible is to move toward a more personalized view of the situation, a more precise view. And that's basically described in every other industry that's been capturing data, and we're about 30 years behind every other industry. So the lesson we learn from other industries and what we experience on a daily basis with all of the technologies we carry in our pockets and in our cars and in our homes is that technology makes things easier, and it comes to adapt to us based on the long tail, this idea of using more data to deliver a more personalized experience. In healthcare today, it's early days, but we're not learning the lesson of nearly every other industry. We are creating from this data a view of the standardized patient. And that is exactly what data allows us to move away from. And so it's my hope that we learn that lesson quickly and adapt away from it. That's a great point. I really appreciate it. So talk, tell us a little bit about, I'm sorry, I've been teasing everybody with this slide. It's called the data pyramid. This is some of Len's uh, thinking about data thinking. Uh, and we did uh, put in uh, a link to a blog in which he lays that out even in more detail. But sort of some, just walk us through this uh, again in, in, in the brief amount of time that we have. Thanks, Len. Yeah, my pleasure. So the idea of data thinking in this pyramid was uh, 
quality improvement professionals, epidemiologists, they work with data on a regular basis. There's there's nothing new here, but folks that are just starting to work with data, um, and and oftentimes I was in the room with a series of QI professionals and clinicians. IT folks, analysts, and myself, and the goal is to quickly come to consensus as to what exactly has to be done to turn this raw material into something useful. And the purpose of this was to demystify the process into a series of simple steps that we could use to refer back to how do we scope this project, who should be involved, what obstacles can we plan to solve in advance before we get too far down the road and learn that we're going to run into a wall. So. Context is king. We've talked about that. It matters throughout the process. But when you're working to turn data into something useful, it is the same four steps every time. You must solve issues of access. Where will this data come from? Is it, is it spread throughout five different systems in the hospital? Who are the gatekeepers? How do we get them to grant us access? If you solve access, then you have to tackle structure. We already talked about the fact that healthcare data is incredibly heterogeneous. Different systems store the data in different formats. A lot of it's free text. If we know in advance that structure is a problem we have to solve, we can begin planning that and we can begin asking structure questions and lining up technologies that can help us make the most of it. The next is analysis. How will we discover the patterns that matter most? And what matters here is not just the statistic we use from a method standpoint, but how will we convey the results and what statistics are most meaningful to the people we're working with. In the computer science world, recall and precision matter around prediction. But in the clinical world, sensitivity and specificity matter. So you want to pick your metrics with a solid understanding of context. And then finally, we like to joke, if you've solved the previous three, but you haven't solved interaction, the best you could do is add another paper to your CV, uh, but you're not really helping patients. Interaction is about delivering the right data to the right people at the right time in the right format. Now, each of these in and of themselves are areas that people spend an entire academic career or become technologists in any one of these. But if you're going to pull together a team to solve a QI problem, you will need to work your way through this pyramid each time. We found it helpful to put this on a whiteboard and to walk through the steps in advance and to refer back to this pyramid when we run into a stumbling block so that we're sure we have the right people and we're asking all the right questions. And I think it's really great. And uh, I don't know if you can name names, but you've worked with a lot of different organizations. And you gave the example of the colorectal uh, in initiative and sort of discovering one barrier after another, starting with how things were coded um, incorrectly. Can you give an example of uh, perhaps any work that's being done or, and on the ground that sort of reflects some of this uh, beauty of this in action um, so that you're really kind of moving through in, in this very iterative way? So, yeah, sure. With, so this is part of every QI professional has lived this and could give their own versions. Epidemiologists sure. certainly could as well. Quality improvement professionals analysts. At SIFT, the company that we're working on now, we've actually turned this into a series of questions that there are pre-engagement questions. So before we decide that it's worth both the hospital or the health plan and our team's time, we start to answer questions like, where does this data live? Who are the gatekeepers? What will be the obstacles to getting it? And we work our way up through the pyramid, including asking at the beginning of the project, who is ready to receive the results of this? First of all, they should be in the room. If they're not, we, we suggest a follow-up meeting. If you can't at least begin to address the majors in this area, 
uh, frankly, uh, no amount of uh, money in the world uh, makes it worth spending everyone's time going down this road and not being able to to deliver at the end of it. Okay, that sounds good. All right, thank you very much. Kadar, uh, just before we go um, to chat, oops, go ahead, John, throw that one up there again, another kind of uh, interesting slide. I guess that just underscores. Um, Len, you wanted to say something quickly about this, and then I have a quick question for Kadar, and then we'll go to uh, Q&A. Uh, sure, if you like. Well, this is, you know, th- these are early days, and, and I just want to draw attention. And I think a lot of the frustration we experience is a result of every other part of our technological world is far beyond what we experience in the clinic. And so this is the natural progression of learning from data. It goes from reporting what happened to monitoring what is happening right now. Why did it happen is the next stage. Prediction, what will happen? And then prescription, to whom will it happen? I would suggest that over 95% of uses of clinical data are just now starting to come online using data warehouses and query tools to understand questions related to what happened. And there are, of course, some great sort of shining examples of folks that have pushed it all the way, but I do want to just ground everyone in their frustrations with the fact that we're just getting started. Okay, thanks a lot, Len. Kadar, I, I don't know if this is, I don't mean this is a trick question at all, but as I look at some of the very systematic way that Len has laid things out, it sounds to me, it looks to me like some things that could be nicely incorporated almost into the model for improvement. Um, since that's a lot, um, you know, we hope everyone, of course, is interacting with patients uh, to gain knowledge and experience and, and all that very important input. But um, can you imagine, in a way, sort of some of this coming together and uh, kind of quickly? And then we'll, we'll go to chat. Thanks. Well, you know, I, I absolutely. I mean, I, when, when Len and I uh, first started talking about this, and, and I think the, the notion that you can, you can build excellent access to information, structure it well, and analyze it, but not... Uh, spend time thinking about how this is actually going to lead to improvement uh, of patient care. Uh, you know that 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 struck me as a as where the tie-in would be. You know, so you could imagine that right in that interaction element, right uh, there's there's PDSA cycles that could spin off of that that would that would lend themselves well to the to, to this and the study step of a plan do study act cycle, uh, which depends again on on access to information on how the system is performing. And responding to the change that you've uh, you created would need uh, access to data, a structure for understanding that information, and then an ability to act on it. So I can I can imagine a, a, well, you know, a, a strong way of, of these things interacting together. And 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 just to say, I mean, I think there are some systems out there, and some very interesting things that are going on right now that are trying to build on this notion. There's some things that are, that, that are old, uh, and some things that are that are newer that are trying to. To build on this and to bring uh, the kind of data that that uh, Len's been speaking about here uh, very much into the re- into real time. There's a group out of uh, North Carolina State University that's working right now on on ways of bringing uh, information data that's been aggregated and uh, analyzed uh, right to the bedside. How do we actually visualize data for improving performance, not in charts um, or on computers in the nursing station, but right at the bedside? How can we start to uh, bring the pertinent information uh, to what matters right now and in the moment in caring for those individuals. And then uh, older examples, I think, that are out there, the work of Intermountain Healthcare that developed a clinical management information system that supported the sort of continuous improvement of clinical protocols. That work 
which really made Intermountain famous for for their their efforts around quality improvement. That that type of thinking, uh, embedding that kind of thinking um, into uh, the data and informatics systems that we're uh, that we're creating today, uh, seems like it would be worthy at this point in time. Okay, thanks, Kadar. Len. Or just quickly, so there's a there's absolutely a number of examples. I would say that Flatiron, which is a company that's bringing together oncology data for 1.1 million patients and turning that into insights that can speed the development of drugs is impressive. Tom Maddox at the VA and the CART program, they're considering... What does that stand for? I'm sorry? CART. Uh, you'd have to ask him. <laughs> they're basically doing cardiology procedures. Oh, okay. So it's cardiology. That sounds... Okay, we got it's that. It's the VA, so it's, it's all <laughs> acronym-based uh, by law. Um so they're looking at over 50,000 cardiac procedures a year and using that information to understand what's happening next. I look forward to a few years from now where it's silly to cite specific examples of people and programs that are learning from data to improve care. I would, I would argue that we have an ethical imperative to use every data point we can get our hands on to improve what we're actually doing. But there are some phenomenal examples of folks who are, who are charting the course right now. Okay, thanks a lot. All right. Uh, both you, of, oh, go ahead, Kedar. Go ahead. I just want to add one more to this because I think there's another element of this around uh, clinical reasoning and clinical decision support. So a lot of these, there's, there's again, there's older technologies uh, and, and newer companies that have uh, come into the picture in the last several years that are helping us to, as clinicians, as physicians and, and nurses and, and clinical providers, to provide the best possible care to patients um, in the moment that we're seeing them. And a lot of these are now being powered by uh, 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 the kind of machine learning that uh, Len was alluding to earlier that allows us to really understand how physicians and, and, and practitioners are reasoning clinically. Uh, one uh, one example of this is the Human Diagnosis Project, which is literally taking uh, you know tens of thousands of cases now uh, that have been entered by providers and allowing us to understand how doctors and and nurses and others work their way through clinical scenarios to arrive at a diagnostic conclusion. That kind of information is going to be incredibly helpful uh, to us down the line in terms of powering uh, real improvement to clinical performance. Okay, good. I have all kinds of questions a little bit of thinking about some of my programs in January, uh, talking about shared decision-making and what matters to you, uh, perhaps a lot of the stuff that would land in the free text uh, uh, box of, of things. But let me, let me uh, it's not about me here. I'm going to put myself on hold. Uh, Len will give us some thoughts about um, kind of uh, natural language processing and some of that as we head to the future. We'll get to that before the show is up today. But now it's your turn, uh, all of you who have been listening, perhaps at rapt attention. I'm so thrilled to have Lynn and Kadar here with us. Uh, your questions and comments are welcome. Don't be shy. We did forget to ask everybody where you were calling from or tuning in from and how was the weather. You're more than welcome to say that now. That's a data point of sorts. Uh, but mostly we want to know what's on your minds. And um, I'm curious uh, what brought you uh, to the program today and perhaps who you are uh, in your organization or in your field where you might be able to make some difference. And while we're waiting for those comments and questions, um, I wanna ma- I'm going to ask that very question. Maybe I'll start with Len because he's uh, been kind of on the ground doing this. 
who owns some of these issues and problems and making some of the changes in healthcare organizations today? I mean, who needs to be almost thrown in the same room uh, to get that data thinking idea um, sort of distributed so that it's a more shared uh, model? Um, and I'm partly hoping that we can even connect to maybe some of the people who are on the call today and the roles and functions they have. Yeah, so to get this kind of work done, just because of the the nature of how busy IT teams are trying to meet meaningful use standards and install electronic medical records, the challenge is right now, because there isn't a ton of infrastructure in place that would allow folks to simply walk up and ask questions of the data, you really end up starting at the C-level, in my experience. And we tend to work with organizations where both the CMO, Chief Medical Officer, and the CFO have declared there is a problem and they share the same issue, which is basically to say they need to learn what's happening, why it's happening, and how to get better. Um, as far as then distilling down into the field this idea of data thinking, I mean, it's, it's my hope that as more and more people need to work together on these problems, we quickly arrive at a common language and an understanding as to what are the steps involved, which is why I wrote that piece to begin with. Uh, and But I really do think this is just a matter of learning by doing. Uh, I would say one lesson that we need to learn quickly that we maybe that was, was shown to us by industry is if you don't have people in the room that understand very well the workflows and the problems to be solved, the odds of you actually producing a data-driven result that will be used and, and used meaningfully are slim to none. Mm -hmm. So in the early days, uh, in the 90s, when suddenly we started installing large customer relationship management tools and logistics supply tools in other industries, we had engineers basically dictating the workflows to the business, and it all came grinding to a halt. Now, there isn't really an app that's developed or a product that's launched that doesn't have designers and interviews and heavy involvement from users because we learned that lesson. So I would hope in this idea of data thinking and, and trying to become more productive in this space, we're able to invite the right people with the right skills and understanding to the table from the start to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that we saw happen in other tech industries. Okay, thanks. All right, first of all, thanks for a few weather reports that we've gotten. Uh, I appreciate also knowing some of the roles and functions that some of you have. And um, I guess I'm going to start just quickly with this question that came in early uh, from India. Uh, somebody is saying they want to improve services of public hospitals in southern India. Where do I start, folks? Focusing patient uh, reported outcomes, uh, whether he should be dealing with the public health uh, hospital outcomes. Um, obviously, uh, we, we can't uh, design uh, your, your program for you, uh, but I don't know, any kind of uh, initial, initial thoughts. All right, Len is not sure that's one he can kind of quite dive into. Well, Kadar, any thoughts? Well, I mean, so I, here's... We actually run a program in southern India, in Andhra Pradesh, at IHI. Um, it's with one of the social insurance agencies, the Aragashri Healthcare Trust. This is a, a large social insurance uh, uh, company. It, it manages or provides insurance for about 60 million people in the state of Andhra Pradesh, uh, which is the state that uh, where Hyderabad is one of the big cities in India. And one of the things that they're doing, which is very interesting, their claims data in this in this uh, social insurance agency, their claims data actually has a tremendous amount of, of, of information in it, uh, essentially, uh, essentially originally developed for fraud prevention, 
but it has a lot of clinical data so that you can verify that there's actual human beings that are being treated in these institutions. And now what's happening with this very interesting, um, in this very interesting setup is that they are uh, providing that information to the uh, clinical service units for the purposes of improvement. And that's how IHI has gotten involved with them. They are, we started with neonatal intensive care. There's about 55 uh, uh, NICUs um, in the state um, that are available for public use. And what we're doing now is using claims data as well as some of the clinically relevant information that the claims data has to actually start to understand where NICU performance is, is better or worse. And again, getting back to the something I mentioned earlier, understanding the variation in neonatal intensive care. And we're essentially using that data to help power the improvement collaborative that's now taking place in this particular place. So uh, it, it, this is just an example of combining purposes for data. The data was originally there for claims. It was then used to prevent fraud. And now we're using that data uh, for improvement purposes. And by combining purposes, you know, we could potentially reduce the overall administrative burden uh, of collecting these data and then improve the fidelity and utility of it as well. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, comment on that if you'd like. Thanks, Kadar. And also, we've got a nice question from Nicole about anticipating uh, if you're if you're on the right track or or bail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Kadar, the, the what you said there that resonates, uh, and I say this to fellows that are considering projects as well as to folks who are just getting started with their own data projects in uh, hospitals and clinics. If you want to find a problem that you think you'll be able to push all the way from the access issues through to the interaction, start start where the financial issues are. Follow the money, because if you can convince folks that there is both a financial need to do it, uh, as well as a quality improvement need, the odds of you getting the access and the support needed uh, go up tremendously. And it, it sounds like that was um, repeated a bit in that story you had told in the work that you were doing in India. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What about this uh, anticipation issue here, uh, Len? Uh, sort of knowing, you know, tools or kind of uh, frameworks for making sure uh, that you're not in too deep uh, or in case you need to change direction. Yeah, so um, I think this is very important. And in the article that I, I discussed, uh, data thinking, one thing I warned of is that um, – uh, simply gaining access can can be uh, quite a challenge before you even start to assess what, whether or not the data is properly structured for what you need to do. Um, the challenge with gaining access is more often than not, the answer to the question, will I be able to get that data, is not no, because everyone is well-meaning and everyone wants to do the right thing. The answer is usually something like, I think that's possible, let's see, let me talk to some folks. So I think the biggest sort of time suck that one needs to get past is to make sure you're dealing with the right person and get an, an affirmative from that person as quickly as possible. Don't allow yourself to get stuck in that sort of quicksand of, we'll see, I need to talk to a few more people forever. Now, let's say you've gotten past that issue and you want to assess whether or not that data is of the appropriate quality, as, as Nicole asks for what you intend to do with it. We start with a random sample of that data. Take down a few. Just just look at it. Begin to ask questions of it. Go to where the data is captured and spend time understanding for what purpose is it captured. Hold that up against what you intend to do with it and ask the people who are entering it if they think it could serve that new need that you're creating. 
more often than, than not, uh, the people entering the data will tell you in advance either, yes, that's really what's going on, or I click that button because I have to to get to the next screen, and I don't trust what goes into there. It's worth spending the time to answer those questions in advance. One of the dangers of sudden access to clinical data warehouses and query tools is we're basically instantly deputizing an army of epidemiologists uh, without maybe uh, the training or time or understanding that it takes to go out and ask those questions and dig a little deeper. That's not to in any way discourage use of the data. That's just to say, be aware of why it was captured before you would tend to reuse it. Okay, thanks. Um, Len and Kadar, feel free to jump in at any point here. So we've got a couple of things. Uh, one person is uh, asking, how do you, um, feeling a bit trapped with the amount of data that must be collected for meaningful use uh, and things Things that have been targeted very specifically, uh, you know, for mandates, etc., cetera, uh, versus uh, things that you really might, <laughs> drawing a distinction here, that maybe whether or not they're necessarily improving care, uh, this person refers to, you know, a lot of pressure to not engage in any recreational data uh, collection. So that gets to an issue we were talking about earlier, whether or not we're being asked to do certain things um, that are really the ones of value. Um, I don't know any thoughts on that, whether you've run into that and, and uh, Len at all, and um, in terms of how people are maybe in any way feeling handcuffed at all by some of the meaningful use criteria uh, versus some of the things they'd like to be investing in. Yeah, I mean, this is an enormously hot topic right now. I suspect it's uh, one of the reasons why the attendance to today is so high is, is that probably balanced against the promise is the frustration of being forced to check boxes and the inability to use that data for what doctors know uh, matters most. I think it was at the National Forum. I was in one of the sessions, the IHI National Forum, and one of the, one of the speakers stood up and said, no matter what you do, don't ever acknowledge within this commercial EMR, I'll leave out the name, that a patient is diabetic. You'll then spend the next 20 minutes clicking your way out of that pit. Uh, and so uh, the frustration is understandable. Um, you know, what to do about it becomes political quickly. What concerns me right now is with the CMS announcement that by 2018, up to 50% of how care is reimbursed by CMS will be based on some kind of value model. Well, that could go one of two ways. It could either be in more of a capitated model where the clinicians and the organizations that know best about uh, how to improve care can design what they think matters most, or it can be through the addition of more and more boxes to check. Um, so if I were to pay attention politically to any one issue that will really affect this issue of frustration, it would be in which direction value-based is, is ultimately defined to, to be, box-checking or more uh, do-it-yourself based on what you know works best. And then, of course, the electronic medical record systems would be forced to adapt, either add more boxes or support the capture of data that clinical teams believe is most relevant for improving their patient situations. Okay, that's very, very good. Kadar, I'm going to uh, feel free to comment on anything that Len's been commenting on, but I thought I would try out something. Uh, we, we have a few questions in here that in some ways refer to 
culture uh, in an organization? How do you manage the balance between sharing data through hierarchies, between disciplines, uh, between facilities? Uh, and also, of course, there are security issues here, but uh, there, I think I'm relating this to another question that came in the chat where somebody uh, talked about the uh, temptation to so-called, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, scrub data so it looks better maybe uh, than it is. Uh, somebody is implying that executives get their hands mm -hmm. on certain data and uh, that's not a, necessarily uh, the, the full picture. Um, I don't know if you can sort of jump in with those thoughts. They feel so ripe for improvement yeah. uh, issues. Yeah. At the, at the heart of a lot of, of those comments, I think, is the notion that we're using data for accountability purposes principally and not for improvement. And what I mean by that is I think we've, in the last, you know, several years now, and Don Berwick spoke eloquently about this in the uh, at his, in his national forum um, plenary uh, back in December when he described the sort of loss of the moral uh, era in some senses and the, how we need to rekindle it. Um, but I think we've lost some element of belief and trust in our healthcare systems and our providers. We've, we've sacrificed um, on some level um, because of professional dominance or otherwise we've sacrificed some level of trust in, 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 in the people that are actually in these systems uh, right now. And as a result of that, the view, the, the view goes that measurement is the answer to that problem. We've lost belief. We've lost trust. And the way to, the way to, uh, to deal with that problem is to measure our way out of it. Uh, if we can simply measure the performance of the people in the system, we can hold them to account. And thinly veiled, uh, but make no mistake, this is inspection. This is, you know, as Don was uh, saying in his speech, this is inspection all over again, and it is damaging to the spirit and culture of improvement. So I think, you know, right at the heart of some of these issues around uh, fudging the data or um, hiding the truth or, uh, you know, is, is this sort of fear, this very pernicious fear in our systems today of uh, being overmeasured, uh, being held to account for things that it's hard to feel responsible for, and, uh, and this sort of spirit of inspection. And it, what we need to do, uh, the counterpoint to that is uh, eliminate fear from our systems and, and really uh, return to the culture of improvement that is so foundational to uh, you know, what we all got into this business for. So I, I, I think that's really at the heart of some of these issues around uh, uh, accountability and, and, and measurement for that purpose uh, fundamentally. I'm not arguing that accountability isn't important. I'm just, I think we've kind of gone overboard with it. And, and measurement has become an instrument, um, and overmeasurement has become an instrument of that uh, accountability force. Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Kato. I appreciate that. And uh, I do invite people to maybe check out our uh, program from last week uh, with Don Berwick talking about uh, measurement as among the things uh, that he is concerned about. Um, there, are, I want to also commend all of you on the chat. You are sharing a lot of really, it looks like, interesting and almost kind of geeky information with each other. That's fantastic, as long as you all are speaking the same language. Uh, in reference to the at the query about the New York Times article. That's actually an article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine um, by Michael Porter and Tom Lee. And um, I think if Vicki, if, I think you got it into the chat. Uh, so check out the chat. We'll also have um, that link. It, it came up at some point. Vicki threw that in. So not the New York Times, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, somebody asked a question, Len. I don't know if uh, this is super technical. She's wondering about 
um, informaticist, and she's trying to combine. Uh, any thoughts on how to combine clinical data, claims data, lab data, radiology data? Just trying to get the information into a data warehouse is a huge challenge. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure about that one, but yeah. I thought I'd throw it out there. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to touch that because okay. it's, it's just so specific to their situation. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I had no idea so many people on this uh, thread would be tossing around words like Tableau and data warehouse, et cetera. Um, I, I, I would say this. If anyone would like to shoot me an email and get my opinion on technical matters, right. I'd be happy to continue the conversation okay. there. I suspect I would bore some large percentage of the audience <laughs> by going further than that. Okay, great. Uh, Len's uh, email address is on his bio slide, and Kadar's is on his as well. Um, I think what well, I'm... One, oh, one go thing, ahead. Jump uh, in. One thing I, I might say about this, I mean, I think, Len, you had... Uh, you said I, I, I technic I'm not going to. I don't know the technical <laughs> domain around this, but I do. I do think there is, and uh, you know, I would challenge. I think that the, the folks on the thread that are that are mentioning the challenge of kind of aggregating and pulling these data together from different sources. That is the challenge to, in in healthcare today. You've got disparate data sources, as Len mentioned earlier, seventy upwards of seventy seventy five percent of the clinically meaningful information not contained in formatted or structured fields that can be easily accessed and utilized, so, you know, natural language processing, et cetera, is becoming more and more important. But the, 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 a real big challenge and, and something that uh, folks at Kaiser Permanente years ago started working on in the outpatient side was how do we get data from lab and pharmacy and our electronic record that our providers are filling, um, plus other sources, uh, clinical and administrative, to, to work together so that we can actually understand uh, how we're doing with respect to certain, uh, certain efforts. Michael Cantor from KP uh, 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 started working on this problem with, uh, this is years ago now, uh, and the outpatient side uh, 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 started with uh, pap smears and follow-up for patients who had had a pap smear, making sure that they'd had, with abnormal cells, making sure that they had, they'd had the requisite follow-up. Uh, same thing, he extended that work to, to work on um, prostate-specific antigen, making sure that uh, folks with abnormal values were getting tested uh, or, or uh, further follow-up. And they were using uh, sources of information from laboratory, from radiology, from clinical pharmacy to actually start to aggregate those information, find where people were being missed. Um, and with you know, the numbers that KPC, the number of patients that pay KPCs, they were always finding you know, uh, some that were not, even with 90, 95% performance, there were still many, many, many patients that were not uh, fully followed. And the safety net system that they created um, combining data from all these different um, sets was able to uh, avoid, I'm sure, a great deal of heartache and improve patient care for several hundred patients. So just an, an important point, I think, that uh, the, the, the uh, questioner asks here. Okay. Thanks, Kadar. Go ahead, uh, Len. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this is the bottom of the pyramid, and this is the start of being able to use data usefully is this is this issue of access. And what we're seeing on the thread here. I mean, there's a reason it's at the bottom of the pyramid and it's the widest. Is There's also a reason why it's getting so much attention in this thread. Um, it starts with gaining access, and then it starts with the challenge of structuring the data, and that takes an enormous amount of time and effort. The one thing I would say for anyone, I mean, if you're trying to create the data warehouse for your entire hospital system, there is a different set of requirements related to that. If you're trying to pull together a few data sets and to get it into a form that you can make sense of it, I would say... One thing people are tempted to do is they try to boil the ocean. They try to bring in everything that may matter. And I think this is just part of this whole big data phenomenon where you think you can bring in everything and then discover patterns. 
what I would say is this is why it's so important to start in advance with the questions you're trying to answer. And that's in small-scale projects. But if you know in advance the questions you're trying to answer and who will be consuming the results, oftentimes you can stay much more focused on this difficult and laborious task of just getting access to the data and bringing it into a format you could use it. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, quick uh, comment from John here. Go ahead, John. Yeah, thanks, Madge. And if you're interested in continuing the conversation and learning a little bit more about measurement, we wanted to invite you to uh, another IHI virtual program, Measurement and Monitoring. It's going to start on March 1st. It's a two-month web program, and it'll help you and your team distinguish between measurement using past data and monitoring using present data for the best chance to prevent for preventing or managing risks. And we think it's ideal for Chief Quality officers, patient safety officers, managers, nurse leaders, or quality managers. So if you want to learn a little bit more, visit IHI.org um, or email info at IHI.org. All right. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Uh, I agree with people in the chat who've said this thread is amazing. A reminder that you can download it when you get off the show. We'll also p- post a nice kind of, uh, we just a little bit of a cleaned up version of this uh, to the website. Vicki helps us with that. As part of uh, wrapping up here, and John, let's let's show this one about the future. I, I sense that people are very much stuck in the present at the moment, at the bottom of the pyramid, Len. But it never hurts to, you know, have some horizons and things that, you know, maybe where we're headed. And uh, that's why I wanted to put this one up. Um, Len uh, has some things that, you know, he's thinking about and working on in the future, maybe that not that far off. Um, anyway, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So. With all of this data comes the opportunity, if not responsibility, to make sense of it. Uh, The one thing that we know is when you're dealing with data that is highly heterogeneous and also a lot of it is free text, uh, there are tools that are set up to make sense of that data. Right now, we're in the rules-based era, right? And, And, of course, the statistics era has been arm in arm with it for, for decades now. Rules are hit or miss, right? And that's uh, uh, clinicians, QI professionals, or analysts trying to create Boolean logic like if the patient has this ICD-9 code and the patient has this drug, then do something. Um, What's now possible is to capitalize on a new set of technologies to consume potentially millions of data points to learn what matters most. Now, there's a lot of hype around this. In fact, I think this field has a bit of a a, a naming uh, crisis. It's called big data, machine learning, natural language processing, AI, cognitive computing, artificial intelligence. And that's really a shame. I think one of the most important things it can do is find a way to describe itself as a simple set of methods, really, that can be applied. The challenge in the dialogue surrounding these is is that it's been bipolar. Either people promise that big data is going to cure cancer in the next few years, in which case uh, what happens, the pendulum swings the other way, and people say things like, Dr. Watson will not replace me, right? Um, But having done this for for about uh, 10 years or so, this stuff works, and the way it works is by staying focused on very specific problems, taking in as much data as possible that's related to the problem, not trying to discover casual relationships between the classic marketing example is diapers and beer. Uh, And so I think this is where it's headed. And we will see the field move from doing reports in big data warehouses to something more like giving clinicians and QI professionals the ability to bring in many different types of data and to get back a rank ordered list of the patients most likely to be in need of their help. And frankly, this is the research has shown this is possible. With SIFT, we're doing this now with partners. 
And what it makes it possible to do is rather than saying, I'm going to take a utilization risk score and simply apply that everywhere, I'm going to start by asking the clinicians who know best, give me 100 patients that if you had only known in advance, if you had only had access to them, you would have done something to prevent the problem. If that's the starting point, then suddenly we're able to give back to QI professionals the group of patients that is most likely to have the problem next, and it totally changes the paradigm. And it's only really possible by focusing on specific problems, uh, and it's only really possible via these technologies that move beyond considering seven to ten data points to technologies that can consider many more than that. But first things first, we have to stop referring to it as though it's going to cure cancer in the next two years and and discover relationships. I mean, those are absolutely worthwhile tasks, and I'm so grateful that people are focused on them, but let's not lose sight of the fact that right now, today, we can be doing a better job knowing who to pay attention to. All right, Len, thanks so much. Uh, Len DeVolio, what a treat to have you with us today. Some final thoughts from you, Kadar. Does the future, um, (laughs) can, can improvement be lockstep uh, with uh, with all of these uh, developments. Um, any parting words from you? Thank you. I'll keep it real brief as we're at the top of the hour. My last word is that improvement and informatics uh, actually uh, need to be married on some level and work together collaboratively in the future. Tremendous potential in this uh, change we know happens at the pace of measurement and improvement, and I think there's just an incredible uh, incredible power in the new sources of information that we have available to, to, to us today. So time to marry improvement with informatics. All right. Well, I hope that we've started to do some of that even right here. It's clear that you're all involved in that, uh, all of you who've joined and my great guests. Uh, Len DeVolio and Kedar Monte. I want to thank the audience, thank my guests. A uh, reminder, you can download the chat and any slides we use today. When you log off, you'll be prompted to do so. We really also appreciate it if you could fill out the survey that's going to pop up. Uh, thank you uh, also for taking a peek at the archive page uh, that will be ready by tomorrow morning so you can uh, uh, let others know about the program. Um, you can also find the podcast on iTunes. Um, any questions whatsoever, you can email Email info at IHI.org. Feel free to suggest future show topics. Uh, by the way, also, if you like what you hear on um, iTunes, uh, it's always nice to write a review. We'll, we'll, we'll take it. We, we appreciate it. The people who help make WIHI possible, in addition to the great audience and the panelists, are John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Roster, Val Weber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. I want to thank some other people, also Stephanie Gary Garfunkel and Mike Britton today, and friends and colleagues of Len who are helping out on Twitter. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing kind of what the Twitter feed is. We are now trying to use the hashtag WIHI, so you folks might want to head over there as well and try in, but you've been in a fantastic uh, audience, and it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks again. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.